This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of Footnotes, bringing you news and views to help you become a more informed neighbor, advocate, and believer. I'm your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby, and today we are talking about Jordan Neely, a 30-year-old young black man who was killed on a subway in New York City, put in a chokehold by a Marine vet who... um, was restraining him and apparently Jordan suffered from mental illness. He was perhaps having an episode. Uh, He was shouting on the train and uh, some passengers in particular, this, this, this man who put him in the chokehold felt the need to restrain him. He uh, nearly was unconscious, um, knocked unconscious by the hold and then later pronounced dead by the uh, later pronounced dead that day. And so, to help us think through this and process it. We have Dr. Terrence Lester. He and I have become friends. And usually when I'm on the mic, I'm in the position of expert, you know, talking about racial justice. This time I'm in the grateful position of being a learner because Dr. Terrence Lester is an expert on the condition of uh, houselessness and, and homelessness. And he schools us all on some ways that we should be thinking about this Uh, with a more informed perspective, with a more humane perspective. So Dr. Lester is the founder of Love Beyond Walls. You're going to want to look that up. Link will be in the show notes. He is also experienced uh, being uh, unhoused himself. So he has intimate, personal, firsthand experience with this. And um, all around, incredibly informative passionate, compassionate person. I hope you appreciate this conversation I have with Dr. Terrence Lester about Jordan Neely. Hey folks, I am so excited to get on the mic with my guy, Dr. Dr. Terrence. What do, what do you what do you have folks call you now, man? <laughs> In all honesty, bro, well, thank you. Um, I just have them call me Terrence, but if it's really professional, and <laughs> you, you you gotta call me doc. You gotta call me doc. Right? Oh no doubt, no doubt. Give this man his flowers. You recently completed your PhD, so congratulations, bro. That is a monumental achievement. And I was just talking to somebody who's in the process the other day. Part of what makes a PhD a PhD is that you go through the fire, and other PhD folks know what that fire feels like. So I know some of you know the anxiety the pressure the endless work and all of that and it scars you up <laughs> you but it toughens you up <laughs> so you made it through oh, yeah. congratulations yeah man um the the phd baptism of fire bro yes. or yes. whatever you want to call it i mean it, it is rough and i think to your point uh we were talking before we got on here you said your family takes the journey with you if you have a traditional family or blended family or whatever uh, you consider uh, those who are joining you within in the process. And everybody feels that pressure yes. because there are times you are researching and writing and reading and you're actually missing out on precious moments or opportunities to watch a movie or tell a joke or go outside. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it is 
for me, I know for me, man, it was a family sacrifice. So I, I thank God for my family, my wife, my kids. Yeah, man. Well, again, congratulations. And we're going to call you Dr. T on this show. <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah. Is this the first time we've been on mic? You you might have been on past the mic before. Yeah. Right? yeah, this is I've been on past the mic before, but this is the first time like. I guess me and me and you yes. are doing a podcast. Yeah, because yeah. I think only Tyler did that show solo and I missed out. Um, so finally, and hopefully, honestly, from my perspective, the first of many, and I'm sure once folks hear more from you, they're going to feel the same. Unfortunately, what brings us together today is a, a tragic event. We're talking today about the death of a young Black man named Jordan Neely. Just by way of context and introduction, I'll read for, for, from an article here that on May 1st, 2023, Jordan Neely was on a subway train and he was yelling at passengers that he was hungry and thirsty and tired of having nothing. Then Neely was put in another passenger, who's also a, a, a Marine veteran, uh, put him in a chokehold. And apparently there were one or two other passengers who were also restraining him. But uh, Neely, who was 30 years old, wa was unconscious by the time law enforcement got there. And then later that day was pronounced dead. And the manner of death was ruled a homicide uh, by the chief medical examiner, which does not indicate intent or culpability. That's for the courts to decide. But the point is he was killed through that chokehold um, because they said it was compression of the neck and uh, asphyxi asphyxiation. So the conversation regarding this horrific event was, you know, this is a, this guy was homeless and he suffered from mental illness and whatever he was doing shouldn't have been a death sentence, but so often that's the case. So we've got layers of race and class and policy and all of that stuff here. So um, before we dive in and talk a little bit about Jordan Neely and then more about what led us here, tell us about your work because that's extremely relevant and salient to this conversation. Yeah, um, man, I, I have chills and I feel it in my body as we talk about uh, Jordan. Um, and I want to say that all of us, in some respects, have a little of Jordan in us. Mm. Um, yeah, I've been doing uh, homelessness advocacy work, homelessness engagement work for the last decade through an organization my wife and I founded called Love Beyond Walls. Um, it's based in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, we've done anything from uh, housing uh, folks to helping people reunite with their family members uh, to the recovery of identification cards, right? That's a long process if you don't have access uh, to identification, uh, helping people to get access to basic necessities such as soap, and water and sanit sanitation, uh, access to be able to wash their clothes or um, access to grooming and support services. Um, we've worked with uh, mental health uh, clinicians as well as um, physicians who've come in and done 
you know, checks on health and eye examinations. Uh, we've partnered with uh, people to even do foot care um, mm. in, in many regards. And so, you know, over a number of years, we have the thing that I've liked to say, all of those things have been vehicles for us to build relationships with people. Uh, because one of the things that I've seen and I've observed over the last decade of doing this work is one of the the greatest challenges of the unhoused community is not only uh, the lack of access to resources, but social isolation. Yes. I mean, think about this. Um, during COVID, we started using this buzzword, social distancing, mm-hmm. which when I first heard that word or term, I started to cringe because here it was, I was proximate to a community who had been experiencing social distancing for decades. Um, And so uh, that's how I found myself in this work. Uh, I've been doing this work almost a decade and um, uh, it's some of the, the most important work I I would um, say that I've ever been a part of. And you've got some personal experience um, in this situation. Is that something you care to share? Yeah, um, I experienced uh, homelessness myself at age 16. I ran away from home Um, due to the social context that I was in. I felt more comfortable uh, removing myself. And you have to just kind of pause and think about a teenager who is in high school who thinks the best option it is is to flee, right? Mm. And so I remember a story that I tell often when I'm talking to, you know, agencies or or young kids, I was standing at a gas station, um, literally begging for change. And I wanted change because I needed to use the payphone. Um, I wanted to use the payphone because I was going to reach out to one of my friends. His name was Eric. And I knew that his father, Mr. Moore, was a good guy. You know, he ate meals with his family. Uh, he was a pastor at a church. I know that he served those who were unhoused. And uh, this guy walks out of the store. He looks at me and he asked me, uh, you know, what on earth are you doing out here so late? And he throws me two quarters, right? Whoa. One hit the ground and I catch the other. And I just remember walking over to the payphone asking uh, my friend Eric, I called him, if his family would allow me to come over because I was going to sleep in a park. Uh, that night and I didn't have anything to eat. And uh, he asked his parents and he comes back to the phone and he says, come on over. My family loves you. Wow. Um, And so long story short, you know, um, I know what it feels like to go to school and fall asleep and teachers not or educators not know why you're falling asleep. I know what it means to have people look at you in disdain. And so I bring not only my experience, but also my scholarship uh, to this conversation. Ooh, just that story hits like a gut punch. And I really appreciate you sharing so authentically and candidly with us. I noticed you use the term unhoused, and I will confess my uh, really inexcusable ignorance on all of this. Can you help us with terms? How should we be talking about um, populations in in these situations? Yeah, I remember, um, um, 
I, I remember so many stories of of conversations where I would be with someone who is unhoused or without an address, and I got a chance to really see their humanity and the brevity of the circumstance. And it dawned on me that homelessness itself is an experience, not necessarily a person. And so uh, what I've tried to do is reframe my language, not to place a label on someone to define them by the worst parts of their life, but to talk about it in a way that gives some clarity to this is an actual human. So I'm elevating and centering their dignity and their humanity over the experience that they're going through. And one of the things that I've seen that becomes really problematic uh, in the U.S. as it relates to the subject is that we um, we treat people who are unhoused as problems instead of people going through problems. Mm. And that slight distinction um, orients our heart's posture to have more empathy and compassion towards uh, this community. And so whenever I'm talking to um, anybody about this subject, you know, I try to use, uh, you know, ML King's ideology of having a world house. If the world is our address, that means that everybody that we're encountering, address or not, is our neighbor. Mm. <laughs> that broadens it out, doesn't it? Uh, we are our brother and sister's keeper. And I appreciate that subtle but massive, subtle language change, but massive meaning change where you said uh, we consider unhoused people as problems instead of people going through problems. And I think you're yeah. absolutely right. That's that's a significant mental and spiritual shift. And sort of along those lines, as a historian, we we, we talk about enslaved people, not slaves. Right. Because if we call them slaves, then we've sort of reduced them to the status of unfree bondage when they're so much more than that. When we call them enslaved, they're experiencing a condition of being in bondage, but they're people beyond bondage. They're people beyond that 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 state of um, unfree labor. Um, And similarly, Mm. with uh, people who are in prison. You know, they used to be called convicts, right, or or some other name. Now we refer to incarcerated people. Why? Because incarceration is a state that they're experiencing. It's not the sum total of who they are. So I appreciate the distinctions that that you're laying out here. Um, and this conversation is brought on by this specific. Uh, event that that just transpired with the killing of Jordan Neely. When you first heard the news or read the headlines, what was your initial reaction? What were some of your initial thoughts? Yeah, man, when I, first of all, I, you know how how social media is like, um, I I definitely believe that there is uh, a facet of social media that becomes really, really uh, important as as far as like spirit spreading awareness, but then, you know, uh, social media can traumatize you mm. uh, because you can open your phone and 
literally encounter, you know, seven different, you know, social injustice stories yes. and you take on the weight of all of that at once. And I woke up uh, 6 a.m. the other morning and I woke up to several text messages, you know, bro, have you seen this? Mm. Um, I read, uh, I can't believe this young black man who was unhoused was murdered on the subway. And uh, finally, um, you know, what is it that we could do to protect our neighbors? And then I opened up my phone and there it is, Jordan Neely. Um, and the first image I saw was three white gentlemen standing around his lifeless body on the subway, or if it wasn't lifeless, a near-death body on the subway. And I just, I teared up, bro. I teared up so much um, because I, I, I work with the Jordans, mm. right? I've been proximate to the Jordans. I've had conversations with the Jordans. Um, and then immediately the first thing I did, which is contrary to what most folks do to kind of justify this type of violence towards uh, a vulnerable population or someone who is marginalized, I tried to, to, to find aspects of his story that I knew the general public wasn't going to hear initially. And, you know, I read an article that talked about how he was 14 years old and he saw his mom, his mother uh, killed. And then at 14, he was made to testify. Right. And then immediately after that, he goes into foster care. And, you know, that's something to be said right there about um, the type of trauma that this young man encountered. And I was just like, I just wept, bro. And, you know, I lamented. I thought about a lament that I wrote um, uh, during COVID when, you know, when they were telling people to shelter in place and you saw images surfing on surfacing online in the city of Las Vegas where they were placing people who were unhoused in parking spaces, you know, when COVID first happened. And I just re kind of reread um, this letter of apology that um, I wrote for the unhoused community. Like, you know, I apologize, you know, that you feel alone and like no one has been there for you during, you know, the pandemic. I apologize for cities using hostile architecture mm. when with how they design cities uh, for, for exclusionary practices. I, I apologize for you regularly seeking assistance, right? And having uh, limited access to bed. And I was just going through this lit litany of all of these like real tangible things that people don't necessarily get a chance to see um, because they only see the unhoused community for a split second. Yeah. And then even when they see them for a split second, they're turning their heads or uh, pushing against uh, um, uh, this community based upon the social stigma that has fashioned them. So I was thinking about all of that. So as the 
sort of story developed and got fleshed out, it, it, it came out that Neely was a Michael Jackson tribute dancer. And he would mm-hmm. dress up like MJ, hat, hair, all of it. And I saw mm-hmm. some of the videos. He was very good at it. Performed in the subway, yeah. Times Square. And I think immediately most people's reaction upon finding that out was sympathy, right? Was like, oh, this this is a tragic loss. But what struck me was we see the humanity of houseless people after the fact and not before or during, right? Like it's only after he's dead that Mm. we see he was a multifaceted, vibrant, dynamic individual who, in spite of the problems he was going through, um, had, you know, all the potential in the world and, and, and a remarkable life ahead of him. How is it that, we only really see the humanity of houseless people who are people. They're, they're people, but we yeah. really, it's so easy to sort of shut off that part of us. And like you said, when, when we see them to look away, to avoid, they are the literal definition of marginalized people that we push to the side. What is it in particular, I would say about um, the condition of, of not having a, a house to live in or an address that makes us sort of really sort of shut down in terms of treating other people like our neighbors and fellow human beings. Yeah. Man, that's a loaded question. I, I feel like I should write a, <laughs> write a, write a paper. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready for it. Now. Absolutely. No, but um, so one of the things I, I want people to know is that, Homelessness itself has a history in this country, uh, just like racism uh, has a history in this country. And um, I think because people don't understand the history, they don't understand the evolution of how they've adopted lenses, right, Um, in how to view those who are unhoused, right? you know, traditionally, there are five periods of homelessness in uh, the U.S. So you got the vagrant period, uh, which lasted from the 1870s to the 1910s, um, the poorhouse period, um, which is uh, right around the Great Depression, which is the first mass homelessness era, right? Um, that's 1910s to the 1930s. Then you have the skid row period. The deinstitutionalization period, which this is essential for this conversation on uh, uh, Jordan Neely, because in the 1960s, there was this uh, movement to kind of deinstitutionalize people who had mental health challenges and other disabilities. And so you had tons and tons of uh, places that were offering mental health support Mm -hmm. shut down. You had hospitals to shut down. You had uh, cuts and the type of resources that were being distributed to these places, uh, which led to uh, the second mass homelessness era, right? Um, Well, the start of it. And then you have what we are seeing now is the chronic period. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the 1980s present moment, right? Which um, this is where this criminal um, 
the criminalization, the ordinances, the, you know, the kind of laws connecting homelessness itself to the criminal justice system starts in the 1980s. And the reason not Reagan. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Under Reagan. (laughs) And we're going to get into that. But like under Reagan. um, Going back a little bit with the deinstitutionalization part, do you, do you, what, do you know why, what was behind that politically or, or in terms of the culture that that would be the movement at that time? Yeah. So there was this, uh, there was this massive, massive focus on, you know, suburban housing and the development of, you know, housing market and all of those things. And so they under under the policies, they wanted to create more access to support these types of endeavors, right? And so that took funding away from affordability, um, affordable housing, uh, some some of the other things that kind of had support structures for those who were in vulnerable situations. And you know, when I when I do my assessment or look at this. You know, we have to talk about uh, urban renewal. I know we'll talk about that. We got to talk about the New Deal and uh, the Great Society social programs. We got to talk about Reagan, right? Um, we got to talk about uh, the lack of access. It was like $17.6 billion that was cut <laughs> from the budget, uh, which kind of produced this contemporary mass homelessness um, era that we see that we're now in right now. Uh, you know, in 1983, we got to also talk about emergency homeless shelters um, kind of starts to open across the country in replace of like the, you know, mental health facilities, the hospitals and such that were he- uh, actually poised to handle um, uh, cases of people who were unhoused that had mental health challenges. And all of this uh, to me, bro, is important because we start to see the criminality happen, which produces the social framing Oof. that we're that we're talking about. Yes. And let me tell you something about social framing. Social framing creates lenses through which people are seen or by the way the way that people see others or see the world. Um, social framing produces social constructions. Uh, I did my research. Um, around homelessness, the history of homelessness, um, and how policies actually keep people from ML King's beloved community. And I spent time in Tennessee. And to be over there doing like ethnographical research and to ask people about homelessness, they cringed, Mm -hmm. right? Because there is a, a frame that has been created to suggest Anything that we talk about it, talk about related to homelessness itself, it's something that's negative. It's something that's criminal. It's something that you don't touch. Right. And then, um, you know, kind of like the, the social framing is used to define who is worthy and who is not worthy, who is deserving and who is not deserving. And most and most people don't even know how they have been fashioned or their intellectual family tree that has produced this type of fruit (laughs) that shows up in their life and how, why they see someone who is unhoused in a criminal light as someone who needs to be punished as someone who needs to be excluded. 
when we are talking about human beings, you know, sisters and brothers, uh, Jordan Neely was somebody's son, grandmothers, grandfathers. These are actual people. Yeah. But yet we've allowed the social framing to produce a narrative that resides in many people that the unhoused are lazy. They're poor. They're, they have no moral. Uh, they don't, you know, you know, they're nuisance. They're eyesores. I mean, we reduce people down to these, to these, you know, where people don't even have humanity anymore. Right. They become something to be discarded. And that has to stop, bro. So it has I, to stop, man. I was one of those folks who yeah, I've said a lot, man. No, this is so good. I, like I said, we j we're here to learn from somebody who's not only experienced this, but now studied it at the doctoral level is teaching about this is leading an organization around this. So talk all you need to. Um, and I'm one of those folks who who texted you because of that background, because of the work you do. So sorry for adding on to um, the the pylon there, but but there are so few voices um, uh, who who can really talk knowledgeably about this. And I just want to run through because when I texted you, bro, you came back with a whole like syllabus <laughs> for us to study <laughs> in terms of yeah. what we can do about this. So I just want to walk through each one, and you can just elaborate on on that. yeah let's do that so okay the, the first thing you sent was i think homelessness attacks should be added to the hate crime policy let me run that back yeah. folks i think homelessness attacks should be added to the hate crime policy expand on that for us yeah so there's this uh attorney uh her name is uh reagan jordan and she wrote this article when she was doing her candidacy, uh, during her candidacy, uh, and it's called Mean Streets. And basically what she does is she looks at the, the hate crime bill that was enacted in 1968, right? Um, and she looks at, uh, you know, how it was expanded, and she starts to talk about the lack of coverage um for those who are unhoused mm. so let's back that up 1968 uh civil rights statute uh made you know it possible for this hate crime bill to be passed which included race color religion national origin you know which could be a punish punishable defense in 1990 uh congress actually enacted the hate crime statistics act uh, and it was due in part to the advocacy efforts on the part of uh, civil rights movements and the crime uh, victims movement. And this act actually was the first time that hate crime was actually uh, coined as a term or a phrase. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's still around race, religion, sexual. Oh, they added sexual orientation and uh, ethnicity uh, four years later. Right. This act added um, guidelines to include, and I'll read this, vulnerable victims. Okay. Vulnerable victims, right? And yet what this attorney is arguing is that vulnerable victims, homelessness itself falls underneath this. Yes. But we don't 
identify um, homelessness in conjunction with the hate crime bill. Hmm. And the reason I'm saying this is because when you read like the National Coalition uh, for the Homeless uh, Report, um, they would argue over the last 20 years, there are 1800 plus incidents of violence against those who are un unhoused at the hands of people who were not unhoused. And most of the people who were committing these crimes, the perpetrators that were attacking those who were unhoused were under the age of 40. Wow. Listen to this. From 2018 to 2019, uh, there were um, 83 incidents of uh, anti-homeless violence. Uh, 39 victims experiencing homelessness lost their lives. 97% uh, of, of lethal attacks uh, were perpetuated by men. 77% uh, of per perpetrators, like I said, was under the age of 40. And 65% of the victims who lost their lives were older than 40. My right? So there's this kind of like, this. there's this like deep hate that we're seeing through national reports as it relates to those who are unhoused. And this includes uh, murders, beatings, rapes, mutilations, you know, and there are statistics that su suggest that I think it was around 44% of these victimizations uh, where people um, reported these incidents were not even like, they they weren't even, it was just like they never happened. Mm. You think about the number of incidents that you hear of everyday people who are housed. And then I want you to think, bro, about the number of incidents that occur that are just reported to those who are unhoused. But how many more yeah. go unreported? Yeah. And so when I say that we need to add this to the hate crime bill, um, and when you look at the hate crime bill, obviously it's, you know, kind of federal, but it's also included by state laws. Right now, you can go to uh, the uh, departmentofjustice.org and you can actually look at this and see the origin of how hate crime started, the policy, and uh, how many states actually adhere to, um, you know, hate crimes, right? And right now, as defined by the Department of Justice, they have a long list. It's race, color, national origin, religion, sexual orientation, gender, sex, uh, gender identity, disability. It doesn't have homelessness on there. That is such an important point, because basically what these hate crime designations are about is people being targeted for violence or abuse because of a status or identity that they hold. And so what you're saying is the houseless population is being targeted for the status or the, the state of not having a home or not having an address. Right. And yeah, the same way that one can be targeted for being Jewish, for being black, for being transgender, whatever it might be. A yes. person can be targeted because they are a group. Houses. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a group. It's, it's a not group. just yeah, like good. a singular yeah. person. Right. That's the distinction um, that Jordan is arguing. She's like, 
because this is a group and it's a phenomenon, right? We have to um, normalize through legislation the protection of our unhoused neighbors. Why? Why? Because she says that will normalize the priority of their humanity. Mm. That's good. Oh, pro it'll prioritize the, the, yeah, yeah, of their of their humanity. My goodness. Well, that's just the beginning. The second thing you said was, I think there needs to be a push for more mental health resources for this population that was cut under Reagan, mm -hmm. which is a very salient point because it was evident that Jordan Neely um, had some uh, mental health issues and yeah. that he probably wasn't getting the care that he needed given um, his financial status and, and whatnot. So talk about more mental health resources for this population. Yeah, I I wrote a, um, I wrote a, I think a tweet not too long ago and I, I was, I was kind of lamenting out loud and my frustration of the lack of access to mental health support for those who are impoverished. Mm. Uh, Joe Blue in his book, The Visible Poor, says, when do we ever separate homelessness itself from the word poverty? <laughs> huh. Because in essence, people who are unhoused are, are poor. So when I talk about poverty, I'm also including um, this population of, of people because homelessness is a symptom of a much deeper issue in our country which is poverty, which is why King was talking about <laughs> this being one of the triple evils. Mm -hmm. But I say that to say because I know how hard it is to access uh, a therapist or a clinician. Mm -hmm. I know how much it costs um, to to upkeep that type of self-care, right, to make sure I'm accessing those resources. So when people come to our center and they're asking for resources like, where can I go to get uh, mental health support? And we look up a sliding scale, even if it's reduced down to $60, $60 a week over, you know, 10, sex 10 sessions, that is $600 that many people don't necessarily have. And it's not, you know, the willingness issue that I've seen is more of the lack of uh, type of support that is accessible where people don't have to pay and they can get themselves in a position where they are well and they are are, are cared for or given the proper um, supports they need to, you know, journey through, you know, their their challenges. The other thing, too, is I've seen, you know, a shortage specifically with where I am and there are pockets around the country too. We've just not enough helping professionals in the, in the field mm -hmm. to be able to care for a population of people who have housing, but then you have this, this uh, population of people who don't have an address. You know, most times when I reach out to, um, you know, a mental health counseling center, they say we don't have the staff and we don't have the bandwidth 
or the resources to be able to offer those types of services. And I think that is problematic because most times we are, when I hear people in their rhetoric, there are uh, three narratives around the subject of homelessness uh, as Teresa Gowan defines it. She says it's sin talk, sick talk, and system talk, Hmm. right? Um, Sin talk, derives from the reformer Martin Luther. He had a hatred towards the poor and unhoused. He wrote that poverty itself was somehow connected to sin. Sick talk is always this narrative around um, being unstable or mentally well or addicted to um, substance. And then system talk, which we talk less about, is structurally how have we concentrated poverty and why are Black and brown communities uh, at much higher rates experiencing this than any other, uh, you know, group of people. And I say all that to say, um, bro, when people start to talk about the unhoused community, oh, they have a mental health issue or they try to use that as, you know, some type of tool to either, you know, own their disdain towards the community or suggest that that's why they should be experiencing what they're experiencing. We talk about mental health in a way sometimes as it relates to this population as almost like a, a thing or a tool that we use to, to, to beat folks up with really, you know, you ever heard, you know, Oh, they're just unhoused because they're addicted to a substance or they got something going on with their mind. You know what I mean? Like talking down about, you know, a population of people that we don't even know the backstory. Right. We don't know that Jordan Peele lost his mom at 14. We don't know. Do you know what it feels like to testify at 14? Do you know what it's like to go through foster care and then zero out and have to end up on the streets uh, without the type of resources or monetary resources to actually uh, go and, and seek out the mental health support, if you don't have those subsidies that are being offered by the government, like, bro, it just creates, it it creates so much harm. We um, make it so hard to be healthy in this country. And a lot of the hardship to become healthy is financial. And what's so ironic is that, like, you're right. A lot of times we'll use the excuse of um, mental illness or even substance abuse um, as an excuse not to support, not to have empathy, not to take action. Right. And what's so ironic right. is that we can be the people who are going to a therapist who are getting treatment. Right. And then we, we can, can be those people. Right. Right. And and we're going to turn around and be accusatory towards someone who just doesn't have the resources or the knowledge to access those same kind of supports that we know our, we ourselves need, but we just, and here we don't even think about it that way. And what I like to do when people come to our museum, Dignity Museum, is normalize personhood. Hmm. What I mean by that is there are people who are housed who are having mental health challenges. As a matter of fact, there's a report that came out of John Hopkins Hospital that suggests that more crimes are committed by people who are housed than they are 
unhoused. It's a study, <laughs> you know. Um, there are people right now that I know who are abusing substances that have somewhere to go. Yeah, yeah. I often ask when people come to the museum, when was the last time someone who is unhoused actually caused some type of harm in your life? Now, we have those, I mean, we see cases where um, people are suffering and they have mental health challenges. But like, if you look at it and zoom out, when was the last time? Yeah. And I, I normally follow up with that question. Well, who was the last person who caused harm in your life? And they always point to someone who has housing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Maybe even abundant so, resources. Maybe people in and, yeah. You know, leaders and elected pastors. Yes. Yeah. Wow. So that's always like trying to get people to stop using the experience that a person is going through, the problem that someone is actually going through as justification of why you shouldn't have empathy. Yeah. As justification is why you shouldn't see someone's humanity. As justification as why you shouldn't include a person who doesn't have an address in the the rolodex of who you consider neighbor right wow. yeah again gut punches bro you just like hitting at the heart of of um a deficiency that we have as uh neighbors to one another and in that message response back to me you you listed several other things but i want to touch on this point in particular because i think it requires something of us it requires action on our part you said i think we need to be proximate to this community give mm. to this community serve this community and fight for this community to be part of the beloved community so can you talk about the necessity of proximity i often call it priestly proximity in terms of you know being among the people right and 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 having that shape your actions and your outlook how do we in a meaningful way, first of all, what's the importance of it? And then secondly, in terms of action, how do we, as people with resources and folks who don't ever have to have a meaningful contact with the houseless population, how do we have proximity in a way that is helpful and um, not inadvertently hurtful? Yeah, that's a great question. Personally, I, I think uh, proximity changes everything uh you have cognitive proximity right where you study and you understand um versus reading like small headlines <laughs> or 140 characters like you get a, a full understanding of you know what is it like why is there an epidemic you start to ask questions like you know what happens to foster youth after they uh, zero out of the foster care system? Or why isn't there, you know, more support as it turn in terms of mental health resources? There's cognitive pro proximity where you kind of orient yourself into this understanding versus allowing, you know, embedded social framing or embedded narratives to kind of drive your fear or disdain about a group. I think there's uh, geographical uh, proximity where by which, you know, you become proximate to the community. I think 
sometimes we look at those who are unhoused as having nothing to offer the world. Mm. Man, I've walked with individuals who are unhoused that had business degrees. Mm. Um, I've walked with, um, you know, unhoused individuals who could no longer afford rent uh, during inflation. I mean, even approximate uh, uh, an an exa a prime example of that right now is we had a family who was living in two cars and their rent went from seventeen hundred to thirty four hundred almost overnight during the pandemic when landlords were trying to recoup funds that were lost uh, because people weren't paying. Right, um, so many families, um, and I, you know, I argue that we're headed towards a third mass homelessness era. But geographical proximity, where you are getting a chance to be proximate to people and hear their stories, because not everybody experiencing homelessness arrives in the plight the same way. Yeah. Homelessness itself is not reduced down to a couple of guys standing on a street corner in a city that you pass. Homelessness mm. itself is a global issue. Mm. And sometimes I think that people don't see it that way because they only have seen people from a distance. I believe that distance is the enemy of belonging. <laughs> mm. Distance is the enemy of belonging. And when we talk about geographical proximity, man, like when go volunteer at an organization, you know, and don't treat it like a, a charitable pat yourself on the back activity. Like create the type of margin in your life where you are getting a rhythm in your life where you can be proximate to, yes. um, you know, a population of people who are so desperately in need of people to stand with them, to walk with them, share your knowledge, share your resources. Man, I remember one time we had a carpenter come to our organization and literally he took his carpentry skills and he taught a group of men who were unhoused. It was a group of seven. And literally all of those guys got jobs. Why? Because he made margin. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I can I can tell you stories of uh, Georgia Tech professors who've come down to our organization who taught calligraphy. And we were able to launch a program called Dignity Art where um, men and women were able to create art pieces. And we would do these art shows, right, where people could be paid for their artwork. And so they're learning teamwork. They're learning community. They're they're having this ecosystem of support. So like when I say geographical uh, proximity, I'm saying um, changing up the rhythm of your life in a way where you're not only doing the same things over and over. I was on this podcast one time, bro, and this was a podcast we were talking about. Uh, racial justice stuff. And the guy was like, you know, I do a podcast and, um, but I don't know how to build relationships. I say, well, tell me about your, your day. And he says, well, I go to this coffee shop, white on, I, I go here, white on, I go there, white on. I say, that's the problem. <laughs> it is. It's not right. You haven't, <laughs> you haven't made um, adjustments that disrupt your normal rhythm in a way where you can place yourself in close proximity geographically to the population of people that you have a heart for, right? That you want to build authentic relationships with. And I, I would use that the same thing when it comes to those who are unhoused. Thirdly, you know, man, I, I think it's um, 
it's giving people space to use their voice. Hmm. In my research, I was uh, I was really toying with ML King's uh, beloved community, where he is addressing our interdependence upon one another, our interrelatedness and our interconnectedness. And he is writing or using this concept around the Montgomery Bush boy boycott, right? And how black folk had to sit at the back of the bus and black folk had to enter into the back of the restaurant and black folks uh, had to wait in another waiting room, even when they were waiting to travel somewhere. And it was like, you know, that was a different turn, uh, time uh, or a place where hostile, racialized hostile architecture was there. And now we're seeing uh, the evolution of that with, um, you know, class hostile architecture in terms of how we ha are designing cities and we are, um, you know, places and boulders on the bridges, spikes. And I, I, I wrestled with King because I'm like, King, what are you what are you saying? He's saying that there is a home that is intangible. Mm. The intangibility of home, the home where you see, feel seen, where you're seen, where you belong, where you feel accepted, where you have what? Voice. Yeah. Mm. That was deep for me, man, Th that revelation, because I want to be someone who is creating the type of world where public sanitation doesn't strip someone's presence away. I want to create the type of world where public sanitation isn't stripping people of their voice. Hmm. I want to create the type of world where people feel like they belong and it's not based upon their class, their socioeconomic status, their mental health state, uh, if they're addicted to a substance or not. That's I want to create that type of world where God's love is accessible to all. And that's what I'm getting at, man. Um, if you are somebody who are who is wanting to create that type of world, I would ask you, how are you creating that type of space in your own life where people can have voice, where they can uh, feel their sense of belonging around you yes. and where they are seen? Yeah. Ooh. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Amen, preacher. Yes. That's beautiful. That is <laughs> That is a beloved community. Um, the, the the idea that community is about connection, not just a physical construction of something. Um, and that's what I really appreciate about your work. It's uh, it's both critical and constructive. You're saying, here's what went wrong. Here's how we get a person in Jordan Neely's situation. How we as a society in so many ways, have, as people of faith in so many ways, failed him. Uh, to put him mm. in this situation. But here's also the yeah. vision for what could be um, a, a beloved vision that is inclusive of people going through situations of poverty and houselessness and, and all of that. Um, yours is a voice that we just, we need for this time in particular. We need it in general, but I especially mean right now is such a critical perspective and ethos and character that you bring to this. I am absolutely certain that folks listening will want to keep up with you. What are the best ways to uh, follow Dr. Terrence Lester's work and learn from you? Yeah, um, man, I, I 
have social media. Uh, people can follow me at I'm Terrence Lester. That's I M T E R E N C E L E S T E R. Um, I have a website that I just launched. Uh, it's terrencelester.org. And I just launched a Substack. Um, nice. Welcome. Oh, uh, from Street. Yeah, thank you, man. From Streets to Scholarship. And basically, what I try to do there is take these very real time things that I've seen either in my lived experience and or while out in the field doing research or uh, serving the community. And I try to like connect that to scholarly context where I'm talking about these things that's happening in the real world, but like research that supports um, some of the ideas that we've discussed on this podcast. Um, and it's my hope, man, that uh, people also get a chance to check out lovebeyondwalls.org. So that's the organization that I lead right now. And I'm I'm just grateful that you had me today, bro. Of course. Dr. Bro. Dr. Bro. <laughs> and you've got a book coming out not too long from now. I want you to plug that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, it's. Uh, yeah, you, you, you endorsed it. Man. In arm's reach. Uh, yeah <laughs> but all guys children there we go um yeah so how confronting barrett history uh can build racial solidarity um and just really quick uh you know erasure has always been a part of the plan of white su supremacy to keep people ignorant of their uh black folks ignorant of their history and offerings and contributions to this world. And I kind of journey through this, uh, my own understanding of like trying to figure out my history and my K through 12 experience, mm. uh, trying to understand why history was left out of, you know, uh, my experience in college, even in Bible college and seminary. Right. But also uh, talking about these real tangible things that I go through as a black man and how I'm trying to teach my kids and I'm calling uh, white people who read this book uh, to stand in solidarity with their neighbor. I think um, racial justice has to precede, uh, you know, some of the reconciliation talk, yes. me personally. I think uh, racial solidarity has to precede uh, some of the reconciliation uh, talk, because if you've never stood with someone, mm. how can you say you're for them or with them? or understand i try to do that in that book man and i appreciate you for endorsing it. Yep. well we'll we'll have you back on for a, a an author interview uh when when the book <laughs> comes out so so uh more talking points to come but thank you so much brother you've really framed um jordan neely's death in a way that i hate i hope moves us closer toward the beloved community and making sure things like this don't happen again or at least as often you've helped us think about homelessness and houselessness um more intentionally so that we don't passively adopt really dehumanizing ideas and i really appreciate you joining us for footnotes we'll see you next time This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? 
Bao's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bao's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.